Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guests you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. We are pleased to have with us today, Anne-Marie Zettemoyer. Award-winning Anne-Marie is Chief Security Officer at SciCognito, where she is responsible for bolstering the firm's threat intelligence, vulnerability management, security engineering and operations, and incident management. She was most recently the Business Security Officer and Vice President of Security Engineering at MasterCard, where she was responsible for security of its trillion-dollar digital division across 120 countries. She's also a fellow at National Security Institute and has held a numerous strategic and technical security leadership roles, including Head of Security Architecture, Engineering, and Solutions at Freddie Mac, Director of Cyber Think Tank at Capital One, Director of Business Analytics at Mandiant, and Special Advisor for the Director of U.S. Secret Service. She has served on Board of Directors and Advisors for several security companies and nonprofits and is founding member of Security Tinkerers, advocate for security policies on Capitol Hill as well. Additionally, she's a highly sought-after speaker, has authored and co-authored numerous articles and papers. And Marie, my friend, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rebecca. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, your original background, what I mean by that is how you started out, your career is always so fascinating to me. I like that you'd start with accounting and finance. That's really similar to Todd Fitzgerald, if you didn't know that. He started out that way, too. There's a lot of us that have, actually. Did you share your lessons learned, especially like starting when you were 15 and how you landed on your first job and then how they kind of weaved your way through to become the cyber guru that you are now? Oh, man. Started out when I was 15. Yeah, I've been doing this for 26 years, not when I was 15, but much later than that. But I, I think part of the strengths of security is having many perspectives, right? And I think having a multifaceted career is very advantageous to helping you not just piece things together quickly, um, but also know when you need different voices and opinions at the table because you're used to understanding that it takes a lot to build something powerful and not just one really deep point of view. I did start in business. My degrees are in accounting and finance, as you mentioned, and then I have an MBA from Michigan, go blue, a couple <laughs> degrees from Michigan because I'm a Wolverine a few times over and that should be no. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I started on business. I was a controller of a financial services company. I was an analyst, a consultant, an auditor. And you asked me what type of advice that I would give to people starting out is that you know, d- don't be afraid to try something new skills transfer, knowledge transfer. When I tell people I started in accounting, many folks who aren't familiar with accounting or finance get a little confused. But the reality is that there is a lot of overlap in in those two disciplines, right? Accounting, you, you are taught so much security in that curriculum. You have to build 
resilient systems, resilient to fraud and abuse, to misuse, to quality issues, to insider threat. CIA, the concept of CIA is all throughout the accounting curriculum. And engineers don't generally know that, right? Because they haven't taken accounting. They they get surprised by that. And then finance is all risk quantification. And if security isn't a risk equation, then I don't know what is. It's a trade-off. You have to be able, you'd be really good at numbers and stats and weigh this pro and con of do you harden to a certain risk appetite to a certain risk level. There's not 100% security. So you're making puts and bets, puts and calls on everything to try and manage properly. And that is an absolute core finance discipline. So all of those things helped me build a really strategic mind. And my my business experience is pretty much every business role there is. So I speak every business language, which then of course in security as the chief or as the head of security, that's a, a business discipline. You're running a business, you're running a team. You have to be able to translate security to the business. You have to understand how your company makes money, you know, how your customers are served, how things are structured so that you could build to suit, right? Build to purpose. I see so many folks struggle in their roles because they can't relate to the business. For me, I found it to be a very useful skill set. And then, of course, the technical side of security is what came afterwards. You have this strategic mind and this ability to work with all kinds of disciplines, and then you learn context and you shore up that way too. You know, it's brought me into a place in security and in the community that that I think is wonderful and able to move things and make change and make a difference. So I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the 26 years in eight different industries and 20 different orgs. I think it's I think it's something to celebrate. Yeah, one of the things that you had just mentioned you mentioned about being persistent in your career and coming from a variety of backgrounds. I didn't start out initially in technology either. And many of us, it's funny, who are top CISOs didn't. But when you go ahead and you speak to a lot of startups and hyper growth and companies like that, a lot of times they're only looking at people who do you get a degree in cybersecurity? And they're not looking at people who might be changing careers. What do you think along those lines? I think a lot of times those are the great gems on people who had a different career before they got into cybersecurity. You know, I actually, I talk about this a lot, not just, you had mentioned like a chief role in a startup, whatever. And sometimes they look at a certain discipline, uh, maybe engineering or whatever. And I think sometimes depending on where that startup is or what type of resources they have, they're looking for builder roles versus an actual chief role. And those are usually indicative of a certain type of person in the in a stage of a career that might be earlier that's that might still be hands-on when you're when you are running teams and you're running 3000 engineers and all that stuff you, you 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 can't put your hands on you know on the keyboard all the time even though you really want to except and I'll tell you I'm terrible at that because I'm a data scientist on top of being everything else I have been guilty of still pulling in huge amounts of data and 
and doing analysis myself because I'm a big nerd and I love that. But even then, I'm like, oh, you got to cut it out because you got to get you, you got to manage the teams and let them do it. So I think when that happens, they're not really looking for a chief; they're looking for an engineer that could maybe grow. And then they what happens is they end up bringing someone in fractionally or whatever that has the experience and perspective to know how to build the program strategically and is there on call if and when something happens or the board needs something or God forbid there's an incident. Um, But talking about second career folks, switching gears a little bit on a pivot to your question. You know what I think that's relevant is when we're developing our hiring strategies, we tend to really focus on like, recent college grads and all of this type of stuff. And I think folks do that a lot because they're looking for a price point, right? And they don't realize that, especially if you're doing something in the sock or something like that, and they wonder why the person doesn't stick around for a year and a half. This is a prime example. It's because sock work can be really boring. And most companies don't build them very well. So you're putting them in an environment that really doesn't know how to nurture the analyst. And let's be frank, it takes a lot of maturity of thought and mental persistence to live the life of a sock analyst. It can be really daunting and you got to know how to pivot and it can be mentally exhausting. So you got to have the focus, right? And you have to have the judgment in order to be a really effective analyst. So if you're doing that and it's your first it's your first thing out of college, what you think it's going to be versus what it is can be very different. And so that analyst is going to get bored. They're going to have fatigue. They're going to have anxiety. They're going to be like, oh, this sucks. And then they switch or they leave. Now, if you take a second career person who has the benefit of years of experience, plus the shift work for statistically for someone coming out of that's younger, is it super popular, right? But if you take someone who's like mid-career that tends to self-select into shift work, maybe because they have family obligations or whatever, and they want the predictability of here's an eight schedule, here's a 12 schedule, I have to work overnight or whatever, because they have other obligations that they can plan around for kids or whatever, they're going to they're gonna appreciate that a little bit more. And it could be the opposite too, but the point is they know that it's there. And they'll work around it. They also have this benefit from an earlier career that they can transfer the skills into, that they can have that persistence of thought, that they can have, and and it's likely going to be the same price point, if not just a little bit more, because you're still starting into an entry point into a new field. And maybe they're coming from a field that had a lower base level. So I think that we are really missing the boat when we're not looking at master's programs, where we're not looking at development programs, when we're not looking at folks that are looking for that switch because they have all of these characteristics that bring efficacy, longevity, and power into the role at likely the same benefit or economic cost than someone who is very early in their career, especially when you're dealing in a high stress position. That was a very long-winded answer, but I hope it made sense. That's perfect. I've actually been very successful on uh, grabbing office managers, 
grabbing people who librarians librarians yeah. are brilliant brilliant administrative assistants paralegals people along mm-hmm. those lines who maybe want to shift because yeah. they have the critical yeah, thinking the they research can skills the organizational skills yeah, yeah we're, we're always lacking that and i think part of the reason why maybe lacking from our discipline is a lot of times as soon as we start a position or whether it's a security engineer or a network engineer, or even for me as a chief, like yourself, I've never had, here's a hundred days for you can read everything about the company. So oh, it, it's oh, been girl. like, we have a meeting next yeah. week and you need to go try and solidify this $30 million deal and why they should be able to trust with us. So with that, you've seen that yourself because you've gone from a fortune 500 company and larger companies that have, for lack of a better term, a longer runway a lot of times their project plans are three years or five years, maybe out a little bit more in some cases. A lot of times they have the personnel and the support, things like that. But when you go to smaller companies, hypergrowth and things like that, a lot of times you're short staff and things might pivot on a dime. How has that change been for you? But I'll tell you, that is a misnomer. I've been, like I said, I've been in eight industries in all sizes. I've been in government. I've been in Fortune 500s, I've been public, private, enormous companies, small companies. Onboarding is a problem. It is a universal problem. And you may think that the big guys have everything figured out with onboarding documents, and they'll give it a go. But even at the big places, whether I've been there in-house or I've consulted for them or just advised, Man, the documentation is messy. And and a few times you'll get a a good team that really invests in that onboarding and might do videos and all of this stuff, but that takes a lot. And if that leader changes, usually that falls apart and they got to start again. So that is a, a universal problem, right? I think what when you go to a startup or something like that, even then, you can have, depending on the type of leader, you might have a really robust onboarding plan. You might, and it could surprise you, right? Because they're nimble and small and they might say, okay, we've got a, the person that was just hired was like, that really sucked. Let me build this while I'm learning. So the next team can, and then you walk in like I did and you're like, oh my God, look at this is fantastic. It's such a, was such a better start than I thought it was going to be. So you, you never know. I think the the lesson from my experience, having had to carve a path for myself throughout my career, is knowing how to navigate the chaos and to start finding things yourself when that doesn't exist and not be phased by it. I don't get frustrated if I'm starting a new place and they don't have anything because I've been through that so many times that I know how to hunt and I know how to feed and I know how to make sure that I have myself acclimated. It'll t- it takes some time, but I don't fear it. And I think that comes from having done it so many times that it doesn't, it doesn't phase, it doesn't phase me. Now that I've said that, I'm sure life will hand me a big box of, <laughs> chaos to go through but there'll be some sort of surprise around the corner Ah. does it go through along with your kind of like your core belief about 
looking at what you believe, look at your challenges, looking at what people are doing now. And if that's what you should be doing on the future without prejudging how they got there. Do you think that kind of ties into those kind of core beliefs that you have as well too, of rolling up your sleeves, getting her done and bringing other people around with you? I think, I think you always have to bring along people with you, but even if you're the chief, it doesn't mean that you have to forge the path all the time either. If I'm starting a new company or a new place or whatever, those folks have been there. I'm going to do everything I can to learn from those folks, right? And then it's my judgment and experience. At the end of the day, they're paying me to make a decision, right? And to develop a strategy and a path, but I never do it alone. Because one, I think that's a really quick way to get people to hate you. But it's also a very fast way to make a bucket of mistakes. I think, you know, what other mistake I see is that folks will come in and either from a, I don't know, it could be from a place of anxiety. Some people could have an ego, who knows? And they come in like a bull in a china shop and they start saying, well, I'm the boss and I know what's going on and this is what you guys have to do. And maybe they have some anxiety about that expectation to do something in 90 days, 60 days, 30 days, unless, which is so rare, unless there is a pants on fire, you're walking into an incident and they're like, yo, get in here, start, please lead us through because nobody knows what to do. You know, you got to make fast judgments, right? But that's rare. There's always, almost always time when you come in to set up your own onboarding plan, which means just talk to everybody you can, read everything you can, ask them why, seek to understand instead of judge. A lot of people will see something and be like, why don't you just, is that not the most insulting thing you could say mm-hmm. to someone who's sitting and say, why don't you just, oh, make me hot, oh, make me hot. There's a bunch of idiots who never thought what you just thought, right? Like they didn't try it. Come on. Usually there's a reason. <laughs> and I think a better approach is saying, when this was tried or what types of things have you tried? What did you find? You know, what happened? Was there, what could have happened if we did this? And just ask the questions, right? To learn so that you could build context instead of just assuming everybody was ineffective that has ever been there in a company. I think a lot of folks make that mistake the first time they change, even the second time they change, whether it's a company or a role or what have you. But the hope is people learn. You do find that with some startups that have been going so quickly and going from one product to another product, trying to find what's going to be their in. And I would say growing way too fast. That's why I think sometimes scaling back is good because you'll say, where can I find this material? It's not there. What about the person who made these decisions? They all quit. And so the tribal knowledge is not there. They're running a yeah. race and you're trying to figure out, okay, we're all running this way. Why? We don't know. Just keep running. Just keep running. Jump on the train and run. Yeah. And it makes it really tough when you're trying to come up with a strategic plan on what are we going to look at for the next one year, two years, sometimes when you can't even get a hold of the next oh, sure. three, three days on that. Oh, you, sure. How do you do that? What is, do you have any golden wisdom yeah. along those lines about strategic plan, tactical plans on how to make that reasonable when you're yeah. actually in those type of roles? Yeah. And the thing is like, even 
in those cases where there's not a lot of documentation, everybody's running fast and sometimes they don't have time to stop to say why or where or how. You've been in the seat long enough and you've seen it. Like, all right, everybody's running in this direction. And you just, you just, I don't say sit back, but you're observing, right? And you're documenting, not from a, I got to document CYA. Like you're developing data points right? To show these patterns of movement, to show these patterns of decisions. And when you're asked in 90 days, then you can say things like, look, this is what I understand. These should be check-ins before that 90-day period, but I see us moving towards this direction. One of the concerns that I have is that we're moving fast. Folks don't understand the why we're moving. So this is what could happen when you're not understanding why, right? You could miss X, you could miss Z. We could be shortchanging this process. These are the risks that are going to open up if they're not open already. So this is where I'm going to look. If nobody can articulate to me why things are happening, then I'm concerned about this. And this is where I'm going to look and dig. Okay? When I'm talking to the rest of the LT or C-suite or whatever, this is my concern. If we're pushing this fast, then what happens usually when you're building that fast is that you're not taking the time for quality checks. And there's likely probably not going to be any security checks in that quality. It's you're probably not in a position where you're including security in the definition of quality because you're moving so fast. And every development shop does that until they get burned and then they have to reassess. And even then, That's only for a time because they'll forget and then they'll move fast again. So it's a pattern that just happens, right? So, okay, here's what I'm going to do to check. You're moving fast, right? Security is the brake that enables you to move fast. It's not the brake that stops you from innovation. It stops you from harm. If you didn't have brakes on your car, you would not be able to go any amount of speed. You would be able to go one mile an hour because you really can't do anything damage with that. And even then, it would be in a little toy child's car that's only foot pedaled. There's no brakes on those cars for a reason. Yeah, the risk isn't high on that. You start approaching it that way. What can I do? What type of guardrails can I put so that we don't make these mistakes? If you're moving really fast, For example, if you're moving really fast, you don't have any structures on, you know, on um, retaining your IP or whatever, and you're seeing a lot of churn, I would be concerned about intellectual property. And this is just one tiny thing, who knows, right? Intellectual property moving out or someone down or, or whatever, getting pissed if there's a lot of turnover and taking stuff with them or sabotaging. So what could I do to form a guardrail here so that you could move fast safely? Because if the company management has decided, and it's their right to decide, that they want to build this way and take on that risk, then what am I going to do as their chief to help mitigate that risk, right, to enable their decision? Now, there are some things that are reckless that you will have to say no to. If you're in a a company that could have loss of life or there's a cyber physical component or you're a critical infrastructure There are times when you have to say no on certain things because of that. But again, those are relatively rare. So you could could see someone run with scissors, which is bad. 
What are you going to do if you can't stop them from running from scissors? That's why, that's where the judgment experience comes in. You're like, all right, I'm going to have EMS on the sidelines. I'm going to have... I'm going to wrap them up First in bubble paper if I can. I'm going to dull the scissor if I can. And if worse comes to worse, I got to disarm them at some point. It's a thing. One of the things I tell people, it starts with really understand what's the enterprise risk management. What is the risk tolerance of the organization? And then if they haven't defined that, it does make our job pretty initially tough as CISOs. We only can protect to the risk that you're willing to be able to accept. If not, we're pushing a rock uphill constantly. Our time is starting to come a little short, but I want to make sure that people know how to get a hold of you if they want speaking engagements or things along those lines and to learn a little bit more about Psychonito. Yeah. I love the community. I'm very active in the security community. So I'm always, always supportive of giving back and contributing to thought leadership in that area. We all have full-time jobs, but I'm always happy to engage that way. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Anne-Marie Zettelmeyer on LinkedIn or AMZ at psychognito.com. And I'm very encouraged, I would say, about people's desires to reach out and really lock arms with other security leaders to solve something. You asked me about what Psychognito does. And what Psychognito does is help people rule their risk, right? Helps them see the unseen and make decisions about it. Make informed decisions that they can have confidence in and they can have trust in. So that, we, like you mentioned, nobody has all the resources in the world. It's great to have a piece of tech that can not only scale your your organization, your expertise, but really give you guidance on what to do first, what to do next, and what to do it with so that so that you know that you're you're doing things in the most effective way with what you have, right? And you can make decisions that you can count on. And I like that. That's one of the reasons why I came here. I know. But to that end, I I run security for the company. I'm not in, in marketing, but I run security, product, cyber, and physical. I have the whole nine yards. And so I've seen a lot as you have. And I love linking up with other practitioners and other security leaders on how to solve things that we all have to figure out together. And as as we mentioned earlier, it takes a lot of minds to fix things. And we only have one lifetime. So we can't possibly know or possibly experience all of the things to be a one-man shop, a one-man island. So I'm going to lead on you, Rebecca, to, with your experience of things that you've done to help me solve problems that I'm facing. And you're going to do the same with me. And I'm going to do that for you. So I encourage folks to reach out if they if they have questions or they want to kick around ideas. I love doing that. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you so much. You are a soulful CXO. Thank you, Rebecca. It was great to be here. 